This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even wind and sea obey him? This is God's word. Why are you so afraid? The disciples had their reasons. At least a third of them, Peter, Andrew, John, James, were fishermen and had experienced similar weather conditions, or at least the threat, while others had certainly heard their share of tall tales. The Sea of Galilee is over 600 feet below sea level with surrounding hills, causing it to be like a protected, low-lying, warm bath. Meanwhile, just 30 miles to the northeast is Mount Hermon, rising 9,000 feet above sea level. The interchange between the cold upper air of Mount Hermon and the warm air of the sea would commingle to produce some pretty hairy weather. In fact, the translation here of great windstorm can in other places in the Greek be translated into hurricane. And the early evening easterly is still known to Galilean fishermen today as sharkia, which is Arabic for, you probably guessed it, shark. Right? The animal which in the seas arouses the greatest fear in people. These storms would be referred to as, and they were feared as storms of truly biblical proportions. In fact, such a storm calls to mind two moments in the Bible. And it's certainly they call to mind for this, no doubt, for any Galilean fisherman. Psalm 107 and the story of Jonah. I want to read to you just an excerpt, and just listen to this with me if you would, from Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And so they melted up to heaven, And they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men 
and were at their wit's end. Down to the depths. Courage, confidence melting away. Reeling, staggering, at wit's end. This describes what happens when any long-held anxiety, worry, fear meets a real-life storm. Life takes your greatest vulnerability and exposes it to the elements. So, why are you afraid? In your bulletin this morning, you should have received the bulletin at the door. You'll find a survey that lists the primary fears of many. Take a moment, circle your fear. Circle your fear. might be the fear of not mattering. You get to the end of your life and you hope you never have to wonder, have I had any impact on anybody? It might be disappointment. Disappointing God, specifically. You got your shot, you blew it. Not just once, not just twice, but over and over again, you blew it. You had your shot, it's gone. You might fear harm to your children. Maybe you're a mother-father-hen type. And so when you read this passage this morning, you're worried about the other boats, right? Going alongside the boat of Jesus and the disciples, you read the other boats. What about these other boats? None of these other boats have Jesus on them. What happens to them? Jesus isn't with them. What's going on with them? If you're not having enough, they'll not have enough. So you save, you save, and you store up, and you store up. Maybe you fear being overwhelmed. Maybe you fear getting sick, hurt, health conditions from your past. Maybe you fear a catastrophe. I was reading a survey this week from National Geographic surveyed a number of countries in the Western world, 62% of people in the West believe a world catastrophe will hit in the next 20 years. next 20 years, it's going to hit. 85% of all people surveyed said they are completely unprepared for any kind of catastrophe in their life, and they fear it. Perhaps you fear death, the final moments of your life. Failure, you fear failure. You fear the unknown, the new. Or you fear worst case scenarios. What is it for you? In fact, if you're willing, briefly show what you circle to the person sitting next to you. Go ahead. Just show it to them. You don't have to say anything. Just a quick show. And if you're still willing, show it to somebody else sitting nearby. Yeah, that's a bigger challenge, isn't it? <laughs> if you came here with plus one. Now, here's what I want you to do. Right next, right down next to the other fears, what others might think. Write that down, okay? Next to the other fears, if you have a pen, write down right now what others might think. All right? And if you didn't show your sheet to someone else, circle that. All right? What others might think. (laughs) Now, that should just about cover all of us. At the very least, you know this morning you are not alone. My chief warrior fear in my life is fear of failure. In fact, a friend wisely pointed out to me this week, we were having lunch, she said, you know, man, I see you want to delegate and help people use their gifts in the church, but even as you do, you worry, don't you? And he's right, I do. For me, I, I worry that I may have rushed people into something 
or I put them in, into a situation too soon. I worry I've not given enough support so they don't feel cared for. But I also worry being too hands-on. It might seem meddling to people. I should take an opportunity to encourage them or give them a gentle push when I'm waiting. Or should I wait and see what happens rather than saying anything at all? Lest I see that person fail, possibly get discouraged, and even possibly throw in the towel and quit, take their gift and go home. Now, I don't do all those things at once. I don't want you to think I'm neurotic, all right? At least not yet. (laughs) When a storm comes threatening to rock this church, I see beelining 110 miles per hour, specific person that storm is going for, and I worry. I'm prone to reel, to be staggered, to get to my wits end, to melt and say, man, teacher, Jesus, do you care? Are you there? The Gospels want to get us away from this fear. In fact, the Gospels list approximately 125 of Christ-delivered imperatives. 21 of those 125 encourage us towards some version of do not fear. More than three times as many as any other do not that Jesus delivers or do's that Jesus delivers. So obviously Jesus is aware of our propensity to get anxious, to worry, to fear. And what it does to us, it paralyzes us. It prevents us from showing compassion, from taking risks, from demonstrating faith and love towards others. And we're on that train. We're heading in that trajectory. But Jesus' question, why, why are you so afraid, is so insightful because we see two kinds of fear in this passage, don't we? Did you catch that? Fear towards storms or something like fear towards God. There are times then when fear is good. Let's talk about that. There are times when fear is good. Fear can be good when it prevents us from harm. First harm, further harm, and forever harm. All right, so fear can prevent us from first harm. That initial hurting ourselves, that that initial, you don't have to experience this to know that it hurts you. I'm telling you. And I put a little fear in your heart. My youngest... Gage and I went for a run yesterday, went for a little jog. He just completed a 5K with his mom last Sunday, so he's feeling a little cocky about his running ability, all right? Feels like he's part Kenyan, something of that nature. Well, I couldn't find his sunglasses, but he took his, and he turned to me and said, Dad, I have mine, and I have good vision. Here, just have my sunglasses. Let's, let's go. And I said, no, man, you need your sunglasses to maintain good vision. It's, it's pretty critical. It's science. All right, we know this. You need these sunglasses. I said, I said Dad, take them. I actually look at the sun uh, sometimes, you know, for one or two seconds. Like, okay, well. <laughs> and before I could get a word in, he said, actually, I think I might try now for five or six seconds. I think that'd be okay. I said, no, do, look, do not do this, Gage. Don't do this. Before I would say that out of wisdom, like general, that's a good idea. Now it's a rule. All right, just don't. Don't look at the sun for any extended period of time. 
And don't worry, Dad, it hasn't hurt my vision yet. I told you I have great vision. I said, yes, but it can. You may not feel the effects now, but it can contribute to something called cataracts. To which he said, but Dad, I love kayaks. I said, well, <laughs> I, I get that. Just, just listen to me. It's a rule. All right, it's a rule from your mom and dad. You should fear cataracts. It's not kayaks, and it can hurt you. Our Father gives us rules to prevent us from first harm. We might fear that harm. Sometimes violating these rules don't come with immediate harm, but long-term harm. That we're not wise enough to foresee, but our dads lived long enough to see. Time and again, the Bible uses fearful words like beware, flee, to help us stay far away from harm. One of the most obvious but vivid uses of this use of fear in Scripture concerns even flirting with a married woman who is not your wife. It's in Proverbs 6, 27 and 28. Where we're told, it's a rhetorical question, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Right, it's a rhetorical question, unless you're David Blaine or something <laughs> like that, right? You're some type of magician in your life. But for us humans, the answer is obvious. Violating, getting even near violating God's laws, like playing with fire. That's where this phrase even comes from. The rule God gives us helps us fear transgression, transgression into all that counterfeit stuff on the other side of blessing. All the stuff that looks good, but it's going to hurt us. Sometimes our Father sends reinforcements to help us beware, in some cases flee temptation, right? He sends us the tragedy of having to watch someone else give in to temptation. And you're like, whoa, that's a good lesson for me. Or someone unwittingly giving you a word. They just speak something. You're like, wow, I needed to hear that. I was about to give in. I was about to cross over. Or the Holy Spirit just kind of reminds you, hey, man, you've been down that road before. And it only ends in pain and finally death. And so fear can protect us from first harm. It also protects us from further harm. Right? God uses fear sometimes to wake us and to shake us out of unrepentant and persistent rebellion. To shake his people out of the persistent self-indulgence, God said through the Old Testament prophet Amos, that he sent famine, God sent flood, God sent drought, he sent mildew, he sent pestilence. He sent war. And in each case, he concludes by saying, yet you did not return to me. I sent these things to remind you, to get your attention, to wake you and to shake you. And you didn't return to me. Because I tried to wake you and shake you, but you didn't respond. Prepare to meet thy God. You never want God to say that to you. I remember being in the mountains of Tennessee in the southeast one time and seeing the, you know, that sign, prepare to meet thy God, followed by some banjo music. Right? And you do not want to see that sign. You do not want to get to the point where God is saying, prepare to meet me. 
Yet he does it to wake us and shake us. God will do what is necessary to get you back. He'll take away your job. He'll expose you in front of your wife and kids. He'll even send you to the hospital if necessary to get you back. If you're on that road where you're just not turning, and you're just persisting in sin and indulgence and rebellion, fear can also prevent us from forever harm. And I think that's what's going on in this story. This story, in fact, is a pivotal one in the first half of Mark's gospel. It marks, terrible pun, a number of firsts, all right, we're going to see this morning. It is the first time we hear of fear in association with the God-man Jesus. Astonished? Yes. Amazed? Yes. Even a glory to God? Hallelujah? Yeah, we see one of those. Not fear. And yet, verse 41, having gone through this storm, they were filled with great fear. Why? First of all, because Jesus awoke. Right? See that in verse 39? Remember as a kid, waking up your mom and dad in the early hours of the morning? For some reason, you just need to wake them up. Maybe you just wanted to get up, watch some TV, Think this is time for them to get up. Remember how they responded? Imagine waking up God, what the disciples do here. As he awoke, Jesus awoke, the blood rushing out of one's face, awareness began to awoke in them. So they feared. They also feared as he rebuked the wind. Actually, the words here, rebuked, is the same language used that Jesus uses to rebuke demonic forces that oppress and torture people. It's that kind of authoritative stop towards nature. He does that. Stops. For a moment, you can imagine the sea personified, or rather, uh, animistic, like a frightened dog slinking back, ashamed to disappoint his master, right? It's that little whimper. You can see the sea raging and raging, all of a sudden whimpering. And they fear because he asked two piercing questions of them. Why are you so afraid? Why is your Fear bent worldward or Godward? Is your fear aimed circumstantially or because the divine is here on earth? And the second question have you still no faith? That cuts to the heart, doesn't it? In this moment, the disciples for the first time start to recognize Jesus for who he is and the void of faith between him and and them. They recognize, they recognize everything gloriously right with Jesus and everything terribly wrong with them. In that moment, there is a void that Jesus himself identifies that can only be filled by faith. It's a void that only faith can come in and fill and bridge the gap. And so the very best kind of fear 
is the terrible moment when you recognize that God is. That He is. Maybe you discover this through a kind deed of another. Maybe you realize it through a failure of your own. Maybe you realize it during Linus's reading of Luke during a Charlie Brown Christmas special, and it hits you. It might be during a song, a piece of music, a piece of art it makes you just stop, mouth agape. Maybe it's the warmth of a church or the grief of a loved one. Maybe it's the pain of separation or reuniting with a loved one. Maybe it's even right now. You recognize in this moment, God is. The moment you awake to the reality that he is holy, righteous, and holy other, you are suddenly naked, exposed, small, And it's then you simultaneously recognize the void, the chasm. As they did this evening on the Galilean Sea, storms often sweep suddenly into our lives to help us see that God is and that we are not in comparison. You had that storm happen in your life. You might be going through it now. And with tender sternness, Jesus reminds his disciples that simple but wholehearted faith can alone fill the void created by fear. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? While the disciples start to wake to who Jesus is, this question hints, and the chapters to follow prove that the disciples don't step with wholehearted faith into the void between them and Jesus. They do not step into it. In fact, the next time they go boating on the sea in chapter 6, they'll see Jesus walking on it. And Mark tells us that their hearts were hardened. In fact, it's not until Mark chapter 8, even after all they've seen, do they take the proverbial step of faith, trusting Jesus to be the Savior, trusting Him to be the one who can rescue them from their smallness, from their rebellion, from their lostness. The New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 31, says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There are two ways to meet your maker. Step with faith into his hands or fall unwillingly into them. Even now, if even now you fear, sensing the void that is between you and God, that He is and that you are not, now, even now is the time to put your trust in Him, to trust your life to Him. Don't be like the disciples who recognize that even nature trusts and obeys its Master. But they do not. They will not. Even now, trust your life to Him. Now, some of you need to hear this next point. And that is that the worst kind of storm is the one you don't know you're in. It's a nice day on the Sea of Galilee. 
Your mentor has entrusted himself to your boat and captaincy. The sun has just set. Your friends are near. You do your thing. God does his. You sail while he sleeps. The disciples don't, they didn't know a storm was developing all around them until bang, boom, pow, it was upon them. Some of you are in a storm more dangerous than any other kind because you don't know that you're in it. Like the eye of a hurricane. The conditions are lovely though in my life. But you're in the eye of the storm, friends. You're living with a man or a woman who is not your spouse. You're in a storm. The Bible says you're in a storm. Read Hebrews 13.4. You're living a lie, but covering up around those with whom you're closest. You're in a storm. We read last week that everything gets dragged out into the light. I don't need anyone else to love Jesus well. Oh, you're in a storm. That's okay for a season. Maybe a season of weeks, maybe months, but not years. You rationalize, it's okay to spend significant time away from my wife and kids because I want to provide for them a good life. Man, you are in a storm of misplaced priorities that are going to hurt you. They're going to wreck you, and you don't see it. You have an unreconciled relationship with someone, but it's okay. That's life. Right? Time heals all wounds. You're in a storm that will grow bitterness in you and another person. What I'm doing isn't, though, hurting anybody else, but you're in a storm that's affecting all of those you love and the entire church body. As 1 Corinthians 12 says, when one part suffers, so does the whole body. And even now, you may hear those things, and I, I will fear. I fear you won't fear. You won't hear and fear, though God says to the one who persists in rebellion, who refuses to give up their own way, that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet you go on. Open your eyes. God is rebuking the wind that you can now see is devastating your life. You are perishing, or at least on that road. Cast yourself upon. Cling to Jesus in the storm. He alone can redeem you and bring you safely through it. Now, fear is not the end. You may have heard the famous proverb of wise King Solomon. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we've seen how fear can be incredibly helpful warning us and waking us to life. And so fear is the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the end. Not the end. Faith is better. We can trust Jesus because he is both the Lord of the storm and the man at rest. We often focus on the former in Sunday school, maybe church services gone by, but few have seen the latter. Jesus is the man at rest. We get to see Jesus rest for the first time, another first in the Gospel of Mark, and also the last time here. And he does so not because he doesn't care for the disciples, as they rashly claim, but because he cares for them beyond what they could possibly fathom or foresee. How do I know? Because Jesus didn't just doze off from a heavy meal, right, from a big dinner, accidentally kind of snoozed, as he went into some type of sleep apnea. He planned this sleep. 
First century fishermen used large and coarse sand nets to catch fish. So they stored their nets, as you'll see up here on the screen, in this little nook built into the stern for this purpose, a little storage area. Sleeping up on the stern deck was impractical because it afforded neither the space, as you can tell from this very small boat that fit only 15 people, nor did it provide protection from the elements. So Jesus crawled beneath the deck. And Peter, this is interesting, through Mark, adds the little detail that Jesus fell asleep on the cushion. Jesus carried on his little soft little pillow around like, like a little boy. I mean, it was that kind of image? Not at all. This cushion is a leather sandbag, a ballast bag, which Mediterranean fishermen still use today. It weighed nearly 100 pounds, and it was used to stabilize the boat. So Jesus would have had to drag this down with him into this nook of the stern to rest comfortably. Again, he didn't just nod off. He had to bring this, intentionally drag it with him. And so his rest, accordingly, was premeditated. It was planned. This was a premeditated rest for a premeditated storm. What do I mean by that? For Jesus to be the Savior we need, he had to perfectly live the life we could not. So he could prove to be the perfect sacrifice in our place and also credit us with his perfect record. We might forever gain access to the perfect God of the universe. We get his perfect record because he died in our place. But he could die in our place because he lived a perfect life. You may remember early in Jesus' ministry, that the Holy Spirit leads him to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And you might recall learning that instead of relying on his divinity to fight off temptation, he fights it off as a man, as a man, using to perfection the same word of God available to you and to me. Because he was the perfect man. He was the man and is the man. Jesus, the perfect man, was a man, vulnerable, a little dot in a Galilean sea, tossed around by hurricane-force gales. But he's so trusted that A, his father is good, and B, his father is large and in charge. So much so he trusted that that he, he almost had the comical courage to plan what might be his only early bedtime of his ministry in a virtual natural disaster. It's almost laughable, right? Oh, here comes the greatest disaster that people in my lifetime may have ever known. I'm just going to go to sleep. (laughs) What? But he's so trusted this Father's good that he is large and in charge. His Father planned the storm and his Father is good so he could plan rest. He so cares for the disciples to be for them the perfect example of faith, of restful faith in the Father. Perfect example. He cares for them enough to rest. They might see in him as he rests the perfect example of restful faith. So he proves he can be trusted as the perfect man to be our perfect tag team substitute before a perfect God. And that's good news. 
Why during our storms does Jesus sometimes rest without acting? We wonder that, right? God, where are you? We want to call you to action. Please do something. Help to give us the space necessary for trust to deepen as we wait for something better. That's what happens in this story, right? Why don't you care? Why aren't you up here? We needed to wait. There's something better. Don't be like the spoiled child who gives his parents no waiting room to be generous, right? That child, that spoiled child, maybe who whines and pushes and says, I want this though, mommy. I want this, dad. I want this. And so pushes that they might get that gift, but they would have got something better had they just waited. You know that experience, right? And he does have something better. If you're in a storm and you're waiting, experience this so often, even in little moments in my life, little teeny storms. And one of my end of day go to phrases, which is, man, I really needed to get back to that person and I didn't. I needed to get back with them. And so often I see them in person the next day, better than a phone call or an email. Or God does something very specific to make my encounter with that person a few days later much richer. Or He does something to make that encounter unnecessary as He works in their lives, right? So Sometimes you miss out on things and you regret things and you worry and then God does something better. I got an email this week from Terrell and Amber Schrock. We support as a church Terrell and Amber's work as missionaries to the Ik people in Uganda. Terrell, Terrell has been long at uh, work translating the Bible into the Ik language. In fact, we were able to, happy to report, we just sent a fresh $3,000 check to them over this Christmas time. Back in March, you may remember we conducted a prayer vigil geared towards peacemaking in relationships, bringing peace in unreconciled relationships. So we reached out to our various missionaries and ministries, and we asked, do you have any prayers about this? And Terrell and Amber mentioned how this was an incredibly timely request for them. Incredibly timely. He said that they had just had to let go of their best longtime translator firing him and let go of a linguist to boot. So not only were there issues there in the relationship, they felt like, man, we are go-, he said, we are going through a storm right now. We're just going through a storm. Pray for us. They ask God to provide peace. They ask God, as we did, to provide new persons, and yet they didn't hear back. Nothing, and months went by. But their email this week gave news that an old ick friend, John Mark, returned after many years away, and not only is he now educated and fluent to translate into English and vice versa, but he's motivated to see the Bible translation completed for his tribe. God had something better. Do you see that? A translator who is a friend from the tribe and they're trying to reach amazingly abundant provision for them. Something far better than what they even had. But they had to wait for trust to deepen for the space necessary to say, yet God, though you slay me, I will trust in you. Though I wait and I don't hear and I don't feel and I don't experience you, this is where trust grows. 
And the provision was far better than anything they could have asked or imagined. This can happen for you. Because Jesus is the man of rest. He's also the Lord of the storm. Jesus takes us through storms when needed, but he rebukes the still of those storms and inflame our fears. Once he's readied us to move on, it's not that he's unwilling to rebuke those storms and still them in our lives. We're just unready. He's preparing something deeper in us. But when he does, he does. He is powerful to do so. But also, he rarely rebukes and stills storms without also rebuking and stilling us. I'll say something to you. Excuse me. I'm going to say something, and I'm just being honest. Right? Those are great words you always want to hear from someone right in your life. I just want to say something. I'm just being honest. And you're like, oh, great. Prepare myself. <laughs> Have you ever wondered if you're a little too bossy? Ever wondered if you might be too controlling? Or you're never serious? Maybe you're too serious. You might be a bit superficial. I feel like you might be unwilling to grow or you complain a lot. I feel like you might be overly swayed by your emotions or you lack sensitivity to any emotion. I feel like you're kind of wishy-washy about important things. I feel like you're kind of snobby. I feel like you resist authority or accountability. Do you have any in your life? There's something about you. I feel like you lack humility. How do you feel about someone saying this to you? Whether it's over coffee or even a nice environment. How do you feel? How do you receive this rebuke in your life? Now, Proverbs 15.31 exhorts us, the ear that listens to a life-giving reproof or rebuke will dwell among the wise. Most of us aren't to that point. And who here can you trust to look you in the eye and with only the best and life-giving intentions say, Hey, Ray. Hey, Stacy. Hey, Max, stop. You need to stop. Be still. Be at peace. Stop. It's going to be okay. Our response is someone says, stop. They don't understand what I'm going through. Also, it's no practical help when a person just says, stop doing it. Or just get on with it. There's no power in that. Jesus, though, he can say it. And so is the perfect Lord of our storms. He understands, having been tempted and tried in every way, he understands the storms. In fact, the suffering of his storm was like no other in the world. No other that the world has ever endured because he endured that storm for the world. When on the cross, he willingly absorbed the just wrath of the Father towards the rebellion of all humanity. That was his storm. And he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in his history eternity, separated from his Father, the wrath of God upon him, the greatest storm the world has ever known. Not only can you be confident he understands 
with the best life-giving intentions. It's a practical help because having risen from the dead, He alone can give you the supernatural stillness to trust Him through the storm of your life. So friend, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Be still. You can trust Jesus. He's got this. Let's pray. Father, we know from experience that storms in our lives, and many of us are going through them now, either flood faith and foster fear, or just maybe, just maybe a storm you can use to father faith and flood our fears. Father, I pray this morning would be the latter. Through whatever's going on in our lives this morning, whatever pain, heartache, unanswered prayer, whatever circumstance, whether it be an annoyance, whether it be a conflict, whether it be a hurt of the most common sword of the most deepest, whether it be a no-way-out scenario, we don't understand. Help us turn to You, the man at rest, and the Lord of our storms. You can be trusted to be that rock we cling to and the shelter from our storms. Help us trust in you today. The only one who can bring us through this. In Jesus' name, amen.